welcome to Trade Matters, a podcast by the Yider Institute at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I'm Jill O'Donnell. This is our last episode for 2020. Trade Matters is going on holiday break, and we will be back with more episodes in the new year. In the meantime, enjoy today's episode and some of our past ones, and stay in touch on Twitter at YiderUNL. Our guest today is Catherine Novelli, president of Listening for America. Kathy has worked in the field of international trade policy for over 30 years, including at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, and most recently at the State Department as Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment. Okay, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us on Trade Matters today. It's my pleasure to be with you. So I want to jump right in and um, begin by asking you about a nonprofit you started recently called Listening for America. And I think this is really timely because it seems to me that your efforts through this nonprofit are part of a, a groundswell of effort among U.S. foreign policy thinkers, current and former, uh, and beyond to make more um, efforts to reach Americans around the country and engage with them on their perceptions of U.S. foreign policy and trade policy and how it impacts them. Tell us a little bit more about Listening for America, the nonprofit you started. Um, You've talked with Americans all over the country about their experiences with international trade and globalization through this nonprofit. So tell us why you started it and what your goals are. All right, well, I was dispatched when I was under Secretary of State Um, for economic growth, energy, and the environment in the Obama administration, I was dispatched to go around the country talking to people about the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. And so I went in the Midwest to do that because I was born and raised in Ohio. And what I found was that there was not support for the Trans-Pacific Partnership But in the conversations, when you ask people why they were concerned, the concerns that were raised actually were not what the agreement did. And my response to a lot of these comments was, well, you know, if the agreement actually did all the things that you're saying it does, I wouldn't support it either. Um, And I really saw that there is just a lack of factual information not just about what went into that agreement or what it was about, but also in general about trade. And I also realized that there was some deep-seated, depending on who you talk to, some deep-seated anxiety about uh, the changing world that was happening and uh, a perception that having open markets was just a fundamentally unfair thing Um, not in the abstract, but actually the way that it had been working in the U.S. And so I decided to uh, actually launch Listening for America to go talk to people from all walks of life around the whole country to try to find out what were they thinking um, and how was this actually impacting them on a daily basis. And so we have been in operation uh, for two years. We've gone to virtually every region of the country. We've talked to thousands of people and we've talked to them in informal conversations as well as in focus groups. And it has been extremely interesting, this whole process. And one of the things I've found is that 
whatever my expectations are when I go into a state, they're always shattered by the reality. So expand on that a little bit more, if you would. I'm curious to hear a little more detail about what you're hearing from people and what takeaways you could share so far from all the conversations and focus groups that you've held. So if we could pick up on your last point there that they're kind of shattered by the reality, if I can borrow your words for a second, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, interestingly, um, one of the things that I found is that a lot of especially small businesses who benefit from all of the trade agreements that the United States has in place in order to access foreign markets really don't know that they're getting those benefits. Um, And secondly, that a lot of businesses who are actually engaged in foreign commerce don't perceive that they are doing that. And two quick examples of that One was a uh, small business uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that did Salesforce type of work for small businesses. And the owner of it proudly told me that they were in 23 countries now and growing. And I then asked him, so what does international trade and trade agreements mean to you? And his answer was, well, they don't mean anything to me because they only apply to manufactured goods and I'm a service. And I said, well, do you know that, you know, the World Trade Organization actually has a whole chapter on services. And one of the reasons why you're able to so easily do these cross-border services is because the, the WTO actually provides uh, for the ability to do that. He had no idea whatsoever. Um, The second example was a small business uh, outside of Philadelphia. And this company provided a service of tracking uh, where trucks were going, how the drivers were doing um, for, you know, long haul type of uh, truck driving for places like Federal Express, UPS, et cetera. And he said, I have nothing to do with international trade, you know, at all. And so I started asking him sort of, how do you do this service? And he said, well, you know, we have a transponder that we put on the truck and then we, you know, look at the data. And I said, well, where does the transponder come from? And he said, oh, well, that comes from China. And I said, oh, well, do you program the transponder here in your office? And he said, no. engineers in India do that. And so, and we do some of it. And I said, well, are these trucks only operating in the U.S.? And he said, no, the trucks are going to Canada and Mexico too. And so to me, here is a person who is tied in and their business is tied in with the global world who has their perception is that they're a purely domestic business. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on. Um, and uh, we really need to do a better job of educating people about what the benefits of trade are. I think everyone has heard about the um, job displacement that you know can be caused by international competition, um, and but not so many people have heard about all the benefits. So a couple of follow-ups there. One is. What would you suggest in terms of 
increasing opportunities for education and increasing opportunities for small business owners like the individuals you just described to gain a greater understanding of the role they actually are playing in international commerce and trade. And secondly, I also wonder how many of the concerns or anxieties that you've heard about from people, you know, you mentioned deep-seated anxiety about the changing world um, earlier in our conversation a few minutes ago. How many of those anxieties do you think are actually related to trade challenges or are they really related to challenges that need a domestic policy solution, which, which would be outside the purview of trade negotiators? I think those are excellent questions. So I, I will tackle the, the second one uh, first. One of the things that we ask people in focus groups, especially when they talk about, well, trade causes job loss, it you know, has all these jobs going overseas. And so we ask people, well, have you lost your job because of that? Do you know anyone personally who has? We have almost never found such a, a person in thousands of people that we have interviewed, but that is uh, the kind of the myth. Um, one thing I will tell you to illustrate that is uh, in Iowa, there was a uh, factory that shut down. Um, it was making uh, washing machines. Uh, and everybody that we talked to said, oh, well, it left and went to Mexico, it left because of trade. And then when I was talking to um, somebody who was a national uh, public radio reporter, he said, no, that's totally false. Um, the, the company that owned the plant was actually taken over by Whirlpool and they moved all the jobs to Benton Harbor, Michigan. So I think trade becomes a scapegoat um, even when it, has, it, it is not the cause. Um, I think there is a lot of anxiety about job loss, even if you are not someone who's lost a job. Um, and, um, and so I think there's a lot of that. I think recent, um, recently stoking the, the whole China situation has caused some more anxiety. Um, and, uh, so I think the, what the solution is to all of that um, in terms of educating people is a much bigger effort than has been made so far. Um, and uh, that really requires more than just a few people uh, reading federal register inputs from you know, individuals. I think it requires something much, much greater. And I would say, I think you are correct that a lot of these anxieties that people have, trade may be part of it, but it's not the whole thing. So let me pick up there. You mentioned Federal Register notices. And so I'd like to get your take on whether you think the U.S. government is properly organized to take in the perspectives and feedback of ordinary Americans on trade policy, like you're doing through Listening for America. And I want to just mention USTR's Office of the U.S. Trade Representative's 2020 Trade Policy Agenda and 2019 Annual Report, which includes three paragraphs on public outreach. It mentions USTR's open door policy, and it discusses federal register notices and public hearings to solicit public comment. 
And these are probably not things most Americans are aware of or seek out or feel they have the time to do if they're even aware of them. So this overall question I have for you is, is, is USTR set up to receive feedback from ordinary Americans in a way that is accessible to them? Because it seems this feedback, understanding how people are perceiving trade in their lives is an important first step to determining how to do better outreach and communication about its benefits and its role. I would agree with your, your last statement. I would also say I think that it not only is it important to understand what people's perceptions are, it's also important to understand what their reality is. And that trade policy in traditionally has really been an inside the beltway kind of thing. Um, and the reason why there's a perception that the only folks who have access to providing input are big corporations is because those are the entities that can afford to hire people to monitor this all the time as a full-time job and provide their input. So uh, in answer to your question about USTR structure, I think USTR is open to input from any quarter. Uh, I don't think they're, they're not open to that. I think, though, that there needs to be a different kind of effort to reach the general public. And uh, that effort just has never been part of the uh, lexicon, the, the practice of, of USTR, because they've been spending their time with an outward focus, trying to break down barriers, trying to you know, make more opportunity and with the theory that that doesn't just redound to the benefit of large companies. And, and I agree that it doesn't just. Um, I think that rather than sort of passively wait for people to provide input to you and then read these you know, comments, which some people will do, I think you're completely right that most people, most people don't even know what the Federal Register is. Um, and, and they would have no idea how to file comments. They wouldn't even know kind of enough factual information about what the comments are being solicited about to say anything um, that would be terribly specific um, in terms of negotiating objectives. So to me, part of the need is for USTR and more broadly for the US government to do much more active outreach, to go to the people instead of expecting them to come uh, to, to, uh, to them, you know, via the Federal Register. So I think that is one thing that would be really, really important to actually have as part of what you do ingrained in your methodology that you are going to go out um, to the public yourself choose the cities where people live, and outreach. Obviously, you can't go to every single city, but I do think it's really important to make sure that you're at least trying to get a representative sample of people from all walks of life um, and not just those who spend full time, all the time, looking at policy. Right, and I find it very interesting that in your prior role when the TPP was being negotiated that you did in your official capacity um, as Undersecretary uh, for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment actually 
go travel outside the Beltway to other parts of the US um, when that was under negotiation to understand how people were perceiving it. And it sounds like, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, ingraining that sort of strategy into what you, USTR and perhaps other elements of the US government do. Yeah, so I would add there that I think that even when uh, people have done what I did, and there were a lot of of people who did that for the Trans-Pacific Partnership in the administration, it was really more of a, let me tell you about this agreement. I think there's a difference between going in the mode of, I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing, and going in the mode of, I think we're thinking of doing this, what do you think? And taking those comments back and thinking about, is there a way to incorporate what we are hearing back from people into whatever we are undertaking right now? Um, and to me, that, that is a very big difference of waiting until something's you know, fully baked and then going and saying, okay, I'm going to tell you what's in it and you know, you'll like it. Um, versus here's what we're thinking, um, what, what's your input on this? And that's what the Federal Register is supposed to be for, but I would say it's a very inadequate tool for actually reaching the general public. Right, a few follow-ups there too. I have you know, talked with other former trade negotiators for the US like yourself who talked about how they would stay up late at night reading 400 comments that poured in and so, as you said, I think that USTR is very open to input, you know, from all quarters, because um, I think sometimes people wonder if their voice is being heard or what happens after you hit send on something um, that you send off, via, whether it's via the Federal Register or some other mechanism. And I think you just make a really important point there about incorporating feedback at an earlier stage in the process. And so I wonder, what do you think it would take to actually shift um, to a point where that is really ingrained in how um, the relevant agencies operate? Should they start holding field hearings out in you know, other parts of um, the country um, as a negotiation is underway? Or how would you recommend at this stage that changes could be instituted to make that happen? I think there needs to be a multi-layered approach. One, one is definitely to hold field hearings. I think there needs to be a, a second uh, prong of that, which is one of the groups that we talked to all around the country were the people in the local governments and in, in some state governments who are in charge of economic development for their city. And, uh, and we talked to a lot of small businesses. And I think that should be the second prong uh, because trade needs to be perceived as part of the economic development at a state and local level by people uh, negotiating these agreements. And they need the input of what is happening there and what's going to be most useful um, for the economic development so that you build a, a more of a bottom-up approach instead of just a top-down approach. I think you have to have both things. Obviously, you have economic theory, you have the input from big companies, but I think you need this other input um, as well to figure out how you're going to sift priorities. 
Okay, I'd like to also ask you about other elements of the US government. We've talked about the Office of the US Trade Representative where you've worked. Um, you also served as Undersecretary for Economic Growth, Energy and the Environment in the State Department, which includes the Office of the Chief Economist at the State Department, not an office that we necessarily hear a whole lot about outside the Beltway. Tell us a little bit more about the mission of that office, how it relates to USTR, and perhaps other elements of the US government, such as the Department of Commerce, what their role would be in a new strategy to take in public input, as we've just discussed. Well, every agency has economists in it. So there's this one at the State Department. There's also a chief economist at USTR. The Commerce Department has many, many economists. Um, and when I was undersecretary, the chief economist worked as a, an arm of of shape, helping us shape policy. And we we certainly we worked on trade policy, but we worked much more broadly on economic policy, economic international policy. Uh, we worked on uh, telecommunications policy internationally. We worked on digital issues. We, we worked on many, many things. And the chief economist was an integral and his staff, an integral piece of that in two ways. One was providing us input into, from an economic point of view, um, how are the policies we're thinking of going to have a positive or negative effect on you know, what, what we want to achieve? Um, and secondly, uh, uh, my chief economist actually started a whole liaison with chief economists in other foreign ministries in the world to talk about the, the economic underpinnings of policy that we in the U.S. government had decided we were going to pursue with the idea that if you could get different economists agreeing, it made a lot easier to get political agreement about things. Um, and that was extremely effective. Okay. So I want to follow up to and ask another question here about what to do with all this feedback once it is gathered, whether it's through um, Listening for America or whether it's through current or perhaps future mechanisms established within the government to engage on the ground with people and understand their perceptions about policies under development. So trade policy, of course, has different impacts in different states, depending on the economic drivers in a particular state, which could mm -hmm. lead to diff differing, of course, um, perceptions about specific trade policies. So once this feedback is gathered, what should federal level officials, trade negotiators, others, whose job it is to pursue the national interest do when feedback from the American public uh, might be in conflict? That is a question that confronts a government official on a daily basis. Um, and the feedback isn't only that conflicts, isn't only from the American public. You also have feedback from different companies with different interests that conflict as well. And part of the role of a government official is to, tr to take a step back, to look at all the feedback and say, how do I balance all these things for the greater good? And that happens every day, all the time. 
um, for domestic policy and for international policy. Um, I think the, as we've been talking about, you know, how do we get more input? Obviously, the balance is going to be struck in a different place depending on what the input is that you have. And so if you have more input from the general public, from small businesses, from cities, if you have more of that, you're going to balance your priorities in a, in a different way than if you don't have any of that. Not because you are purposely trying to, um, to have a policy that isn't as balanced, but because that's all the input you have. So your output's only going to be as good as your input. Okay. So, Kathy, the last question here that I ask every guest on this show, um, and that is, what is something you've read recently about trade or global commerce that's been particularly striking to you? I would say what I've read most recently is the FTC taking actions uh, against Facebook um, to, uh, to say that they think Facebook should be broken up. And while that may sound like a wholly domestic issue, Facebook is a global, it is all over the world. The issues of digital access, of privacy, of um, integration are everywhere. Um, and the concerns about Facebook are felt in Europe, they are felt all over the globe. Um, and I think that these issues of uh, digital platforms of how competition will be maintained across borders, uh, inside borders. That is one of going to be one of the key questions that U.S. trade policy is going to have to confront in the future. Okay, so very forward-looking issue there. Is there any particular? article or report that you've read on this specific issue that you would recommend? I've just been reading the articles in the Washington Post. I believe that there are some analyses that have been done um, in Brookings. I don't have the exact titles of those articles, but uh, Bill Baer, the former uh, assistant U uh, U.S. Uh, attorney general for antitrust has been writing about this uh, quite prolifically. Okay, we will we will look those up because this is certainly a major issue and yet another facet of trade policy that will continue to take off and be important to dive into. Kathy Novelli, thank you so much for joining us today to help us understand the importance of listening and what to do with that feedback. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Trade Matters. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, leave us a review. It helps new listeners find us. We will be back with more episodes in 2021. Meanwhile, a big thank you to Alex Wojcicki and JC Toman for helping produce this podcast. Opinions expressed on trade matters are solely those of the guest or host and not the Yider Institute or the University of Nebraska-Lincoln.